I suppose if I asked you what you're afraid of, uh, I'd probably guess what some of your answers could be. You know, some people are afraid of silly things like spiders. That's me, by the way. Other people are afraid of like mice or heights or something like that. Some people have really strange things that they're afraid of. Some people are afraid of things like clowns. I don't really get that at all. Um, my dad has an elderly aunt. She lives out in Ballyclare, and she is petrified of lifts. She won't go in a lift, and even though she's not able, really, to go up and down stairs anymore, she insists if she's going to go, even if it's 10 floors up in the hospital or something like that, she's not getting in the lift. No way. But what about those things that really scare us? You know, those things we're really afraid of. Maybe they keep us awake at night. Maybe it's financial worry, wondering if you're going to have enough this month to get through. Maybe it's something medical, waiting on tests or something like that, worrying. Maybe that's actually doing more harm than the thing itself. Or maybe you fear death itself. Even if we're good at suppressing it, all of us have things in our lives which worry us. But the passage we read in Luke 1 today is one that's very familiar to us, of course, but one thing that we mightn't immediately associate with it is it's a passage with a character who is absolutely terrified. Because in this Christmas series, we're looking at a number of instances in the Christmas story where an angel says, do not be afraid. Last week it was Zechariah. We're going to look at Joseph and the shepherds, I think. But Mary was probably the most frightened of all. It's sort of hidden there in our English Bibles, but when it says in verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. We have a word behind that which isn't found anywhere else in the Bible. The NIV says she was greatly troubled, troubled, but the word suggests much more than that. She was petrified. She was probably shaking. She was gripped with fear. Even when the disciples thought that their boat was going to sink and they were going to die, even when the guards saw that the stone was rolled away from the tomb and Jesus was gone, even when the Philippian jailer saw that his prisoners had escaped and he was going to turn the sword on himself, even then Luke uses a, a fairly common word for being scared, but he doesn't use this one. I think it's fair to say that Mary was scared. So I don't know what you're afraid of today, but I do know that God's word today teaches us that we don't need to be afraid, and that we don't need to be afraid for at least two reasons. We don't need to be afraid because God cares for us and because God is faithful. God cares for us and God is faithful. Let's look at these together then. So firstly, God cares for you, and I know that that sounds like a typical Christian cliche, a really trite thing to say, just, oh, well, you're all right, God cares for you. But today we'll see that God does care for those who obey him, that last part's important, by the way. God cares for those who obey him. Remember Mary's response to all that happens? She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. For those who obey God, he shows his care. It's something that's true for all of God's people. Sometimes we think very highly of Mary. The Roman Catholic tradition in particular elevates her to a position that's not warranted by the Bible. We're not going to go into that today. But it's fair to say that she was highly blessed. She was highly favored, perhaps more so than any other woman who ever lived. Later on in chapter 1 of um, Luke in verse 48, Mary says, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. So Mary is highly blessed. We shouldn't shy away from that. But even so, Mary's a very ordinary person. 
She lived an ordinary life in an ordinary place, just like you and me. If you have your Bible open, uh, look with me again at verses 26 and 27. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Mary was an ordinary teenage girl. I'm tripping up over my congregational committee election slips up here. Mary was an ordinary woman in an ordinary place in an obscure village. I imagine on a morning like this, like Ballyneur, you know, it's a lot snowier out there than it is here. I, I, you know, imagine Nazareth out there. It's the sort of place that people ask, could anything good come out of there? Mary was a person of no social significance. She lived in an ordinary hill town in the north of Israel, an ordinary girl. Going through the ordinary stages of life, it might seem quite foreign for us for a young teenager to be engaged, but that's a cultural difference between that place and our place. But everything about this story is run-of-the-mill. It's very ordinary. But with this girl, the most extraordinary thing is about to happen. We just read together that God sent the angel Gabriel to her. Then in verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, no wonder Mary was frightened. This is Gabriel, you know, who spoke to, to Daniel in the Old Testament. He's this angel. And we know how the story goes. The angel tells her that she's going to be the mother of Jesus. But God, throughout this story, tells us, and he shows his incredible care for this ordinary girl from this ordinary time. For one thing, he provides her with Joseph. We might skip over that, but no, he cares for her, and he sends her Joseph. Because for God's son to be born of a woman, it's essential that the mother would be a virgin because there could be absolutely no question of a human being being the father. So the angel Gabriel had to go to somebody who was unmarried. But God's timing was just right for Mary because if God had sent the angel earlier, she might not have been betrothed yet. If he had sent her at a time when her father was maybe in negotiations with Joseph for a betrothal, the whole thing would have probably fallen through. And if Mary had been found to be with child at a time when she wasn't betrothed to Joseph, it would have been unimaginably awful for her. It was bad enough. You know the story when they go to Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. Um, really, it wasn't an inn in the way we think about of it. Bethlehem didn't have a travel lodge. But they would have been staying with Joseph's relatives in his hometown. And so the fact there was no room for them in the house suggests that the family really disapproved of this situation. Imagine one of your relatives coming to you in labor and you're not letting them over the door. I mean, it's horrendous. We might imagine that that couldn't ever be, but this is what had happened at the time. For a woman to be pregnant outside of marriage was an issue of great, great shame. But it would have been a thousand times worse if Mary didn't have Joseph. For her to be single with a child the consequences would have been dire. She wouldn't have been able really to explain who the father was. She might well have been put out of her own family home, destitute, desperate. It would have been almost a death sentence. I'm not saying I approve of that, but that's how it was. God provided Mary with Joseph. We read the story in Matthew chapter 1 where, where Joseph has in his mind to divorce her quietly. What that would have communicated to people was that the baby was theirs and that Joseph was doing the decent thing. He'd paid the father the price for the betrothal, but he was going to give her back into his care so that she could be looked after there. The fact that she was betrothed 
stop Mary from being put out onto the street. The fact that God sent the insult to Joseph to tell him to take Mary home as his wife meant that Mary had security. She had someone to take care of her, to provide a source of income for her and her child. She had a husband who she would go on to have more children with and to build her family with. It still wasn't going to be an easy road for Mary, but God showed his care in providing Joseph. He also showed his care in pointing her to Elizabeth to give her some reassurance. You see, in verse 34, Mary asks the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, it's a very different question to the one we saw Zechariah ask last week. Back in verse 18 of Luke chapter 1, he says, how can I be sure of this? More literally, he says, how can I know this? In other words, Zechariah is saying, how do I know what you're saying is right? Zechariah's question was a question of doubt, but Mary doesn't doubt. She simply asks, how? How is it going to happen? She knows that she shouldn't be conceiving a child because she's a virgin. It actually says a bit more than the fact she's a virgin. You might be familiar with the King James, which says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And even though that's in older English, the idea is that not only is Mary a virgin unmarried now, she's not planning to get married anytime soon. It's not as if her wedding day is tomorrow. Presumably, she isn't going to be married for some time. Mary knows where babies come from, and she knows what the angel has told her isn't going to happen naturally anytime soon. So it's understandable that she asks this question. And in his answer, Gabriel points her to her cousin Elizabeth. Verse 36, he says, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was sent to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. Gabriel points Mary to, to someone she knows in her life where God is doing extraordinary things. And he says, look at her, trust God, because nothing's impossible with God. We see God cares for Mary. He gives her Joseph. He gives her the reassurance of Elizabeth. So what about you and me then? Because this all seems quite far away. Well, as I walk a life of discipleship of following Jesus, I become more and more convinced over time that God provides us with what we need, to use another cliche, not necessarily with what we want, but he will always provide us with what we need. I think for me personally, it's very much been the case over the past two years or so. Many of you know um, that my mom has been seriously ill during that time, and around about a year ago, it got to the stage where mentally things weren't good. There were a few physical things going on as well, which may or may not have been related. I also had minor surgery at the start of the year, and I ended up being off for around four months. Now, I don't want to go into lots of detail about that because I don't want the sermon to become about me. But suffice it to say that around about a year ago, I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't well, and it was very tough. And I would love to say to you that in those moments, I was spiritually really close to the Lord. I was in a great place, that I was on some kind of spiritual high in that. But it wasn't like that. It was a dark valley. I spent a lot of time in prayer and reading the Bible and some other things. But it wasn't smooth. What I wanted God to do was to pick me up and drop me out somewhere in a place where I was at full capacity to go again physically, spiritually. But it didn't work out like that but he did always give me what I needed. There were answers to prayer, both medically and in some family things too. And even though the process was tough, I definitely wasn't on a spiritual high. I came out the other side of it. And what I have now is, is more of God 
I have less of some of the stuff I had before, but I have more of God. And I can't explain how it happened. But he cared for me in that time. He gave me what I needed to get better at his pace, not at mine. And as I say, what I have on the other side is much better than what I had when I started. I think sometimes he brings us so low so that we can learn the truth of the words that the Lord gave to Paul when he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not easy. We try to lean on absolutely anything else. I know I did. The program's tough, but his grace is enough. The learning, the discovering of him in pain is completely sufficient. You maybe know the old hymn, O love that wilt not let me go. It has this verse, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Can I encourage you this morning, if there's something that worries you just now, or maybe you're going through one of those really tough valleys that life throws at us, God does care for you. He cared deeply for this terrified teenage girl. And if you trust him, he'll give you everything you need. He won't give you everything you want, but he will give you what you need. And can I also encourage you, if you are struggling at the minute or worried about something, don't give up on coming to church. Even if you feel far from God, don't give up on meeting with God's people. Because when Mary was afraid, what did Gabriel say to her? Look at Elizabeth. Look at the amazing things that he's done in her life. Remember, nothing's impossible with God. Because sometimes when we're not in a good place spiritually, it's easy to drift. We see other people doing well, and maybe we're even tempted to be a bit cynical and say, well, how come they've got it so good? And I don't. I'm over here suffering. But God's word challenges us and it invites us to see things another way. You see how he's blessing those other people over there? Those ordinary people, they're every bit as unlikely as you. See them and remind yourself, nothing's impossible with my God. So we don't need to fear because God cares for us. And secondly, we don't need to fear because God is faithful. Again, we're so familiar with this story that we maybe don't quite see it through the lenses of Luke's first readers. Luke begins his gospel with a little note to his reader, Theophilus, and then in verse 5, he paints the scene. He says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, Marty mentioned that last week, that the first readers would have really been gripped by that. We we just think it's unimportant. It's just a, a time marker. But to an Israelite reading that, it was heartbreak. There was somebody on the throne in Judea who wasn't an Israelite. The land was under Roman occupation. And God hadn't sent any prophets to the people for 400 long years. But then there's this spark of hope. As the carol puts it, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. God is starting to do something for his people in these verses. When Zechariah and Elizabeth managed to conceive, despite really being too old to do so, well, if you were an Israelite reading this, immediately you'd think, wow, Abraham and Sarah, it's just like Abraham and Sarah, childless and beyond the age of childbearing. And yet God intervenes and gives her a son, Isaac. Again, Isaac marries Rebekah, but she was childless, and Isaac prayed for her, and she conceived. She had the twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob had several sons, but he loved his wife, Rachel, the most, and she was childless. But God listened to her prayer, and along came Joseph. So immediately from reading about Herod and thinking, oh no, this is a really bad time for our nation, suddenly there's a thrill of hope. 
And then in verse 26, God sends the angel again to a virgin and tells her she's going to have a son. In verse 32, it says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And suddenly, if you're one of Luke's first readers, your mind's going into overdrive with excitement because you're thinking about all those promises of God from the Old Testament. Isaiah 7, the virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, to us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign where? On David's throne and over his kingdom from that time on and forever. There are so many others. 2 Samuel 7, where Nathan the prophet tells David that one of his descendants will reign forever. Psalm 2, where it says the son, God's son, will have the nation as his inheritance. Psalm 89, where it says that the one who reigns on David's throne forever will, kill, will t- call God his father. I mean, if you were an Israelite reading Luke and you believed what you were reading, you were pretty excited because this long-promised Messiah was finally here. But his identity here is really, really important. Do you see verse 32 of Luke 1? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Now, this is where things get tricky because in those verses, the The little baby who's going to come is called both the son of the Most High, yes, but his father's going to be David. So who is his father? Is it the Most High or is it his father, David? Well, to help us understand that, I want to use some of the words that we sang earlier. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, very God, begotten, not created. Now, there's more theology in that one verse of a Christmas carol than there is probably in all the other verses of all Christmas carols put together. It's tricky. It's straight out of the Athanasian Creed. But let's unpick it together. Don't worry, it'll be easy enough. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I don't think it's news to anybody here today that Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But what do we actually mean by that? What do we mean by Son? Because humanly speaking, a father always exists before a son does. My dad existed about 33 years before I did. He was definitely around first, and then his father before him, and his father before him, and so on. But that's not the case with God the Father and God the Son. That's why the word begotten is included there. Very God, begotten, not created. See, at a certain point in time, I was created, but not so with God the Son. He was always God. Now, I I know we can't fully ever get our heads around this. How can somebody be a son and have existed for all of eternity? Well, let me help you with a story that you know. You know the story of the the prodigal son, the one where the, the, the two sons, and one says he wants the inheritance, and he goes away, and he wastes it. He comes to his senses. He comes home. The father throws a party. But what about the other brother? He gets annoyed with his dad. You're throwing this party for this son of yours and I've been a goody two-shoes all these years and you've never done anything for me. He's mad. The father says to him, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And that's what it means to be begotten. It's not a, a term of biology. It's a legal term. 
That's the heir. This is the one who owns everything, even when the father is still alive. If you read the the King James Bible in the book of Chronicles, you see that so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and they begat so-and-so, and begat, 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 and it goes on forever. And that is usually talking about biological children, but biology actually isn't the point there. The point is that legally, this is the firstborn. This is the one who owns everything. This is the one through whom the family line goes. And so Jesus is God's son, and that means that everything that God has, he has. Everything that God is, he is. That's why we sing, God of God, light of light. I'm sure it's hard to understand, but we confess that Jesus is God of God, light of light. He is both God and of God at the same time. Father, Son isn't that the Father existed first and then the Son came along. No, God of God, light of light. Now, I have to say, when I arrived this morning, I was in the last minute, I was in a bit of a flap, but I was surprised to see that all the musicians and the guys upstairs, there was consternation about the words that I had chosen for that particular hymn, because, you know, should we sing Born This Happy Morning or That Happy Morning or whatever? But I don't really care what words we sing in the last verse. It was all about this verse, because modernization of the words says God from God, light from light, and, and that's, you know, pretty bad heresy. It's not that God was there first and then from there God came. No, God of God, light of light. Sorry to the compilers of the Irish Presbyterian hymn book. God of God, light of light. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. He really should have abhorred the virgin's womb. He really should have hated being there. The holy God in an unholy place. It's mind-blowing. Very God begotten, not created. Very God is just old English for truly God. He was truly and fully God, begotten, not created. Now, let's come back down to earth for a moment, and I'll stop my jibes at the the Irish Presbyterian hymn book, because we've just done a fair bit of theology there. But So, if you tracked with me, well done. If you didn't, don't worry. Now's the time to tune back in. God cares for you. God is faithful. And all of that stuff about Jesus being the Son of the Most High meaning that he's fully God, the Most High, God of God, light of light, it all boils down to this for us this morning. God is faithful. God promised that he would put someone on the throne who would sort out this world and rule over it forever. And the only one who actually could do that was God himself. That's why Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. There couldn't even be a hint of a suggestion that Jesus had a human father because then he couldn't live forever. He had to be God. He had to have God as his father to keep that promise. It had to be virgin birth, just the way Isaiah prophesied. But also for God to keep his promise, it had to be Mary betrothed to Joseph, who was from the line of David, so that Joseph could adopt him as his son. So Jesus was the son of David truly. In Israel, if somebody adopted you, you were their child. There was no such thing as a stepchild or a stepparent or a half-brother and half-sister. Those things didn't exist. Adoption was viewed as as good as blood. Jesus, fully God, was the son of the Almighty who would save us. And Jesus was the son of Joseph, which was the true and rightful heir to the throne of David. Again, a carol can maybe help us out, or at least a line from it can. Infant holy, infant lowly. Infant holy, Jesus was God in the flesh. Infant lowly, Jesus was born of a teenage mum 
with an adoptive dad. I love the carol we sang before the kids went out, but there's a line, in it, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Jesus was an infant, fully human, but fully God. In other words, even when it looked unlikely, God kept his promise. Even in the back end of nowhere, the Balinur of ancient Israel, even when it involved a woman who'd never slept with a man, even when there would be scandal, rejection by family, even when it looked like it had been too long, maybe, and, and maybe God wasn't going to keep his promise, God kept his promise to his people. So if you're struggling at the moment, if you're afraid, know that God is faithful, even if it doesn't particularly look like it at the moment. The words we've been looking at today that God spoke to Mary through the angel, they're words which remind us of promises in God's word spoken long before. So when we struggle, well, that's what we need to do. We need to do the same. We need to remind ourselves often about God's promises. There is no sin too bad to be forgiven because the Bible says the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. There's no heart too hard to be changed because the Bible says God changes a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. There's nothing God requires of us that's too difficult because the Bible says we can do all the things he requires of us through Christ who gives us strength. There's no trial that is too hard because the Bible says that his grace is enough. It's sufficient for us. There's no promise of God that won't be fulfilled because in the Bible, Christ says that his words will never pass away. There's no difficulty too big for us because the Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? We need to keep these promises on our mind. Whatever you need to do, write them out, pray them over and over. Nothing's too hard for God. And he's faithful. He keeps his promises. So what do we need to do then today in response to God's word? Well, we need to respond some way or other. And I suppose we have two options. We can either go on being afraid or we can trust. I am the Lord's servant, Mary, answered the angel. May it be to me as you have said. Mary is a blessed woman. She's a wonderful example for us here. She doesn't bring very much to the table other than her willingness to do what God requires of her and her trust. So we don't need to come before God with some kind of inferiority complex, feeling we're not good enough, either because we just don't think that we're good enough or maybe we compare ourselves to other Christians. We just need to be willing to let him lead us. We know the road won't always be easy, but we also know that God will care for us and he'll keep his promises faithful forever. Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for the reminder it gives us that you care for us and that you are faithful. Lord, we bring before you now our own hearts and our own fears. And Lord, we confess before you that so often we don't trust. So often we go on worrying without turning to Christ. Lord, help us, even in these few moments, to turn these things over to you, to cast them on to you because you care for us. Lord, help us to walk in obedience then to your word, to trust you, to face whatever we have to face, knowing that you love us, that you're for us, and that you sent your Son to die for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.